Happy Sabbath, church. <gasps> All right, so true confessions. These earpieces are really uncomfortable. So I take them off and throw them down my back. I forgot. <laughs> Sorry, guys. That was my bad. All right, this, uh, yesterday afternoon, my foster daughter, Melise, asked me about the sermon for today, and she said, could we have um, a five-minute sermon? I promised her I would do my best, because lunch, <laughs> yeah? So hold on to your hats. We're going to take a bit of a spin around the block, but we're going to pause long to gaze at Jesus. On March 5th of 2016, the Pirates were playing the Braves, the fantastic pastime of Americana baseball. And at this game, Danny Ortiz was up to bat, swinging hard to hit for a home run. And as he spun around, the bat slipped from his hand and flew into the stands. And this picture is a result of that bat flying towards the face of one nine-year-old Landon Cunningham. You see people ducking and moving to get away from the bat. Landon was in the middle of sending a text to his mother, a picture from his first major league baseball game, and he missed the fact that a bat was flying at him. Sitting next to him was his father, Sean, who saw what was happening and instead of ducking away, reached out a protective arm and deflected a high-speed wooden bat. Oh, how often we need that deflection. How often we need that protection. The photographer who took this picture also has another picture, and you're welcome to scour the internet for it. The next picture is the bat skimming about an inch over Landon's head, where it falls just behind him onto the concrete, hitting no one. Sean reached out the arm that was needed that day and saved his son, nine years old. The next day, he was on a live interview and was given a, an autographed jersey from his favorite player. And he spins and looks at Dad and thanks him. Thanks, Dad, for the jersey. <laughs> Children are a precious treasure, something to protect, something to celebrate, something to honor. It has not always been thus in our world, and we're going to take a little trip down memory lane. Well, history lane. If any of you are old enough to remember it, then we need to talk. In the Greco-Roman world, the world from which we get the Gospels, in that time period, imagine with me dusty, rocky roads, the clank of chisel and hammer against marble, Imagine with me the open markets and the smell of food cooking and the vendors shouting what wares they are selling. In that world, there lived one class of people who were acknowledged as fully human. There was a term for this. It had been coined by a, a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, about 300 B.C., 
and he used the term logos, which we have in our scriptures in the Greek, right? And we use it often. We see it especially in John chapter 1 highlighted. And we define it quite narrowly as word, meaning word, a form of communication, a word. If you put a definite article with it, you get the word. And John uses the word to describe the Messiah, the one who was to save the world. But in the Greek and the Roman world, into which Jesus was to enter, this idea was an idea of rational thought, of logical thinking. And there was only one group of people who existed who were able and capable to logically reason through anything. It was a short list. Men. Free men. That's it. No children, no women, certainly not slaves. Any foreigners were suspect. Men. With this capability at rational thought in their culture and at that time, they were then given a lot of extra benefits. They were allowed to own land, to vote, to hold jobs. They had social standing. They could be educated. They had their own household that they could organize. If you were a woman or a child or a slave, you were too prone to emotion and your impulse, so you could not be trusted to make radical, logical thoughts. We had to leave that to the menfolk. Now, last week we spoke about a number of different vulnerable people that Jesus saw, that he encountered, and that he welcomed into his kingdom, those who were blind or lame or dead, or women. But this week, we're going to focus on another group that Jesus welcomed into his kingdom with open arms, the children, the little ones. Now, here at University Church, we are enormously blessed. We have a church of children every week. On average, we have about 300 children, 14 years and younger, who attend every week. We have a church of children. That's bigger than some churches in our conference, just in children. We have eight Sabbath school classes that meet weekly that help teach our little ones about Jesus, about the Bible, about Christian living in our world. We send home materials so parents can study with children. We have an amazing Pathfinder Club. We have additional youth groups that all work to reach children and help them fall in love with Jesus. Children are celebrated here in this church. They are honored. As Americans, we generally are pretty good about acknowledging children and honoring them and celebrating them. Here in the Pacific Northwest, family is huge. Many people have said many things about children. John F. Kennedy said, Children are the living messages we send to a time we will never see. A special panel on basic child care organized by our government in the 80s said this, children are one-third of our population and all of our future. Christopher Moore, the author, writes, children see magic because they look for it. And my favorite, Dr. Seuss. A person's a person, no matter how small.
the views of peoplehood have changed enormously from the Roman-dominated world. Some of the thoughts still hang over. Children were not considered human because they didn't benefit society and they couldn't think. It wasn't until they reached the age of about 13 or 14 that they were considered a part of the major populace. So they were often sidelined and ignored. If they survived to age 10, which the majority of them did not, then they often were put to work. In the ruins of Pompeii and Herculaneum, little tiny skeletons have been found. It's very rare to find a child skeleton because they often decompose so quickly. But they have found little baby skeletons that, and child skeletons that were preserved in the ruins there. And they see that some of the kids as young and five and six years old in the Roman world were put to hard labor at the dyeing factories, the fabric factories, they would be stomping in the dye into the fabric and lifting heavy, heavy, heavy sheets of wet fabric in order to sell at the markets. Five and six years old doing work that now grown men would do. The reason they know they did this kind of work was because of the, the strictures and the different markings that were left behind on the bones from such heavy lifting. Children weren't really considered able unless they could do something that benefited the larger society. And Jesus steps into this scene and he says, the kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdom of Rome. And he invites children to join his kingdom. And he invites the adults to start to think differently. I want to invite you to pull out a Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 16 together. Again, that's Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. I'm reading from the New King James Version here. Any version will be absolutely wonderful. Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. Then they brought the little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, and he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. Jesus is in the middle of a preaching tour. He's well known in the area. People have come from all over to hear him. And here come mothers and fathers carrying their children to Jesus asking for a blessing. They have seen what he has done. They have watched life be restored to dead people. They have watched blind people see. They have seen lepers cleanse. They have heard the stories. They have seen the miracles. They've been fed with loaves and fishes, and they bring their children to Jesus because they want their children to be blessed. And he sees them in the crowd trying to come close to him. And his disciples, acting much 
as though Jesus were any of the other bigwigs of his day, start to shoo the parents and children away. Because the famed and the prestigious and the intellectual had no time for children. They were a bother. They were the domain of women. They were the domain of the home. They were not something for wise and intelligent men. But Jesus does not react like his culture tells him he should. Instead, he, he stops the disciples seeing and acknowledging these little ones in their midst. And he asks them to bring the little ones to him. There is a story of a Native American man who was traveling east with a friend of his. He'd never seen a large city. And he travels to the city, and he is agog at what he sees there. Gaping mouth, lots of noise, carts and horses and people and yelling and smoke and everything you could possibly imagine from an old city. And he stops while they're walking down the street, and he cocks his head, and he runs off. And his friend is standing there going, um, uh, off he dashes. His friend waits, and he comes back, and he's holding his hands cupped like this. And his friend says, um, what do you got there? So he shows him, and in his hand, nestled in his hands, is a cricket. He had heard the song of the cricket through the bustle and the hustle of the city. He was listening for home, and he heard it. You see, Jesus was looking for home, for echoes of God, for reflections of God's character, and he saw them. He saw them in the children, and he reaches out for the little images of God that were being herded away from him. Even the tiniest person was precious to Jesus. Jesus advocates that we, and that in the world back then, that we take care of children physically, that we feed them, that we don't shove them away, right? He, in fact, if you look back at the scriptures there in Mark chapter 10, he does what to them? In verse 16, he takes them up in his arms. He embraces them. He lays his hands on them. So it probably would have been a very rabbinical blessing with a hand laid on a head. And he prays for their life. He refutes everything that everybody has taught him by saying, no, it really matters. This little life matters. And I want this little life to be blessed. And so I'm going to care for it. I'm not going to shove them away. I'm going to make sure they're fed and cared for and nurtured. It matters because a person's a person, no matter how small. Jesus believed that, and he acted out on it. He would protect them physically from violence. And he would advocate that we do the same. The statistics from our world are a little humbling. Before the age of 18, one in four girls will have experienced violence, child abuse, and one in five boys. 
That's a startling statistic. It was worse in the Greco-Roman world. But perhaps we have some learning to do from Jesus. Jesus didn't just advocate for feeding and caring, for disciplining and for teaching characteristics of God to children. He also advocates specifically for their spiritual training, right? In Mark 9, verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble or or to sin or to err, to walk away from the principles of the kingdom, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus feels very passionately about children and their protection. And those who lead them astray get some very strong words from Christ, that if you lead them astray, it would be better if you had died. Jesus' interaction with children and with family changed the cultural landscape, bringing a new anthropology, bringing new ideologies about child-rearing into our cultures. We hold on to some of those today. We see later in about 350 after Christ, right? 350, Augustine writes about the Innocentia, this idea that children who are not quite at that logical reasoning age and who still need to be protected, that they are not to be harmed. So we've gone from 300 years before Christ to 300 years after Christ with a big shift about how we view children as a culture. It is not that they are to be ignored, to be sidelined until they have something to offer. They are to be protected, to be nurtured, to be raised in belief. And Jesus advocates for that. And Christian households began to be very different than their Roman and pagan counterparts. O.M. Baki, in his book, um, When Children Became Human, says this, a child born in a Christian household had a greater chance of actually growing up in that household than a child born in a pagan household. Children would be sold off, given away, bartered in pagan households, sometimes sacrificed. But in a Christian household, they were valued and held on to, secure and protected. If you stayed in a Christian home, the likelihood of you having stability and care, people who would advocate for you and wanted to see you survive and thrive was greater. These were people who would help to shape your character and direct you to Jesus and to salvation and to hope. Your value in Christian circles was understood because you were seen through the eyes of Christ. Christ alive in human hearts, in families and individuals, brought honor to human beings. So what is honor? This is one of the most succinct definitions I've ever heard. Honor is the value of a person in his or her own eyes. That is, one's claim to worth, plus that person's value in the eyes of his or her social group. Honor is a claim to worth along with the social acknowledgement of worth. It's acknowledging that people are people indeed, 
and they have value. We as Christians see humans as created in the image of God, an infant, a toddler, a teenager, images of God. And we rally to protect them physically and spiritually. The story is told of a prophet who was sitting by a road, and he was there with some of his followers. And as they were sitting, a procession, a funeral procession, went by. And as the procession neared, he stood and turned and watched it go by. And his followers were a little aghast. Why would you stand for this person? Plainly, they were of a different faith than we are. And why would you ever honor them? He turns to his followers and says, was he not a soul? Honor is seeing someone for the value they have, and each of us holds the value of God. God created, God planned, God inspired. To honor someone is to claim their worth. So what are children worth in our world? You know, there's a weird list on the internet that will tell you how much your body parts are worth. Like, well, how much you can get for a kidney? It's like $289,000. How much you can get for an eye? All sorts of different things. Your organs, what they are worth. The benefit that you could get if you sold your body. Parts and pieces. There is nothing that ever gives us the worth of a child. No amount of money can be placed on the worth of a child. It can't. And yet we acknowledge them. We see them. We encourage them. We hope. And we rally beside them. I'm going to put a number up on the screen that I want you to reflect on. 150 million a lot. This is the most accurate number that we know of for children alive today who are enslaved or have been trafficked. 150 million children. Jesus did something about the way children were treated in his day. And I believe he's asking us to do something today. But how do I combat the enslavement, the abuse, the neglect of 150 million children? There are some practical steps that we could all take. First and foremost, know who is making the things you are buying. There are countries who do not have child labor laws like we do and will enforce children in the workplace in very dangerous situations. Your electronics, your clothing, all sorts of things. There are lists to be found of ethically sourced food, like chocolate, that doesn't use child labor. Number two, refuse to buy illicit material. Refuse whether it's in person 
or online or in print. The majority of people who are in those kinds of industries are not there by choice, especially the children. Number three, learn the reality of where you live. A little more than one-third of our valley lives below the poverty line. 34% of our valley's children are dependent on basic food programs. We do not have enough foster homes in this valley for the children. We have a problem here. Can you imagine going home and not knowing if you'd get dinner tonight or breakfast tomorrow or lunch tomorrow or dinner tomorrow? You just didn't know. One in three children in our valley are dealing with that as their reality. They may not have food that is nutritious enough to help feed a growing body if they do have it. Now, our church and the Walla Walla General Hospital have a food program that sends bags home on the weekend with various students who are in need. So they have food over the weekend. Sometimes they have it overnight. Can you imagine what it would be like in our valley if no child ever went to bed hungry or worried about a meal tomorrow? We need to multiply some loaves and fishes. There are foster children here in our valley who arrive in homes with every belonging that they have, pictures, clothing, books, everything, in garbage bags. That's how they're sent to the next place, garbage bags. Can you imagine if every child who was in the system in our valley had their own suitcase? And they could travel in style. There may be a problem that you see that I am unaware of, but if you see it, I firmly believe Jesus has put you there to help meet that need. He never puts us where we cannot help. Maybe it's with money, maybe it's with prayer, maybe it's with encouragement, but there is never nothing we can do. I know that each of us can make a list of people who have helped shape and influence our lives. I made a short list here, and I'd like to share some of those things with you. I fell in love with Italian culture and history in my second grade class with Mrs. Giallo. I fell in love with poetry and writing my sophomore year of high school with Mrs. Bridgewater. I learned something about cars and how to take them apart. I'm still working on the putting them back together. From my uncles and from Bill Price. I learned a bit of wit from my best friend Rachel and from John Cleese. I learned how to pray by listening and watching my mom. I learned how to study the Bible because the Fergusons 
open their home to 22 hungry young adults every Friday night for two years. They fed us spiritually and physically. Can you imagine if each one of us would step in to the life of a child and help be what they need? You will do something I cannot do. You'll do something I don't know how to do. And that is a beautiful thing. But imagine if you were a child and you had a need. Who was it that helped you? Or did you try and go it alone? There is a saying, be who you needed when you were younger. Maybe you needed somebody to feed you. Maybe you needed somebody to listen. Maybe you needed somebody to give you a shot of courage or somebody to advocate. Maybe you needed someone to teach you what love and patience and grace were. Be that. Do that. Jesus saw the little children. He opened his arms and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Let's do the same, church. Let's do the same.